Good morning, Grace Point. I'm so glad you're here today as we gather on this last Sunday of June. And I don't know about you, but I've had this weird experience where sometimes it feels like, man, I cannot believe that the month of June is already over. It's gone by pretty quickly. And then there are other days where it feels like, how is it only June? How is it not 2030 or something already, right? Like it's been this experience. So wherever you find yourself today, I'm so glad you're here with us as we continue our series where we're reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith. And I want to jump into, to, what I want to jump into today is not just a word, but a phrase. And it's a phrase that if you have been around the Christian tradition, especially if you've grown up in the Bible, well, this is a phrase you'll have heard a lot. And it's the phrase, the word of God. Uh, sometimes people shorten it and say God's word, but the same thing. Um, what comes to mind for you when you hear that phrase, the word of of God. I bet for many of us, if not most of us, probably the first thing that pops into our brains, the first association we make is that the Word of God is another way of talking about the Bible, right? If we set up an equation, we'd say Word of God on one side equals the Bible. And if I'm being totally honest, that phrase, God's Word, Word of God, actually sometimes it makes me feel this sense of queasiness. It makes me a bit uneasy because it's often said to end a conversation. Right? It's often said when somebody's asking a question, well, I don't know, it's God's word. If you have a problem with it, you have a problem with God, not with me. Right? Have you ever been in one of those conversations? Sometimes it's used to correct somebody who's veered off the path of orthodoxy. Well, you know, God's word says. How can you question that? How can you doubt it? How can you try to reinterpret it? Because I'm not interpreting it. I'm just telling you what God's word says. Has anybody else been in one of those maddening conversations? When I was a kid, we actually had a magnet on our refrigerator that was shaped like a Bible, and it had the phrase on it, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Which as a kid, even as a kid, I wondered, well, if God said it, does it matter if you believe it? Does that, is that what settles it? Right? So, so I grew up, um, and like most of us did, with this idea of God's word, the word of God, being equated with the Bible, and not just the Bible, but often a specific interpretation. And in some cases, in some, uh, some of the, the experiences of my youth, it wasn't just the interpretation, it was the translation. If it, if it, if it isn't King James, it ain't Bible, right? Like I, I, that's uh, sort of how I grew up. Many of us were raised with the lens that taught us that the Bible was the inerrant, infallible word of God that contains no errors or no mistakes or no contradictions. It has no issues at least in the original manuscripts. And that sets up quite the expectation, right? When, which is one of the problems in the way we approach the Bible. We often place expectations on the Bible that it was never equipped or intended to bear. We often come to the Bible demanding things or wanting things or looking for things that honestly the Bible just was not equipped to give us. The way this perspective shaped my imagination as a kid is that I assumed that the Bible had just essentially fallen out of the sky. Leather covered, gilded edges, King James Version, my name and the date I went down front and accepted the Lord right there on the cover. And honestly, sort of the, the, not explicit, but implicit within our tradition was the bigger the Bible, the better the Christian, right? Like sometimes people come to church and if they have like a, a small Bible, you'd be like, wow, they're, 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 not really, they're not really reading that Bible, right? They're not really into it. The bigger the Bible, the better the Christian. The problem is the way I kind of grew up imagining it, and nobody told me the Bible fell out of the sky, but that was just sort of the, the impression I got listening to people talk about it. And the problem is that that's not where we got the Bible. That's just not how the Bible shows up. 
The Bible is actually a library. And if you think about a library, when you go in, we still have those around, right? Like you go into a public library and you don't go in there expecting to find one thing and everything's the same, right? So you don't go into public library and only expect to see history books. You don't go in and only expect to see fiction. You don't go in and only expect to see books on science. You, you go into a library assuming that this is going to be a diverse collection of literature and they're all not trying to do the same thing and they all can't be read the same way. And it's by all these different authors uh, that have that have sort of everything's been brought together in this one space to be curated, to be experienced and to be engaged but you don't engage it all the same way and you don't interpret it all the same way. And it's not all written by the same person. And when we come to the Bible, we are coming to a library. We're coming to a library that was produced by two communities, the uh, ancient Jewish community and the early Christian community about over a period of about a thousand years. And what we see in the Bible reflects their limited understanding of God, human beings, and the world they inhabited, just like our interpretations do today. I can promise you there's going to be somebody who listens to a sermon like this from me or anybody else in a hundred years, and they're probably going to say, wow, they were really limited in what they understood about human beings, or they were really limited in their understandings of the cosmos, or they were really limited in the way they thought about God. The Bible also shows an evolution and a tension in thought. It shows people wrestling with these ideas and sometimes leaving them behind and embracing new ones. And it reflects the tension inside the Bible. There is tension and engagement between various authors who are all seeing something differently and wrestling with what they should do. And I think that's a really, really good thing. I guess what I want to say is the Bible emerged from the ground up, right? It didn't come from the top down. God didn't write the Bible and drop it into the world. The Bible emerged as communities had experiences, experiences of the world, experiences of each other, experiences of the divine, and they began to tell those stories. And this is why power and privilege can actually act as a set of blinders, preventing us from seeing and hearing the meaning of a text. Because when I come to it in, in 2020, as a straight, white, cisgender male, who has grown up and lived his entire life in the most powerful economic and military force the world has ever known. When I come to the Bible and I begin to look at those texts and those stories, I assume that I'm the good guy in the story. I assume that it's written and that the, the, the authors of the text are on my side. But what I find is that actually the Bible's written from the bottom up. It's written from the, the place, not of privilege, but of oppression. It's written from the place, not of, of, of strong, strict belief often, but even doubt. And, and wonder and questions. So the, the Bible didn't fall out of the sky. It came out of the real experiences of real human beings, all of whom were living as oppressed people in the various empires of their day. So if the Bible isn't the word of God, and, and, and don't turn this off yet, I'm just going to say the Bible, in, in my view, the Bible is not the word of God. Hang in there and we'll get to it. Um, uh, if the Bible is not the word of God, what is the Bible? And I would say this, I think the Bible is actually a witness. Now, we talked about signs last week and that signs weren't the point, but they point. Uh, I think the Bible is a sign that points us to the word of God. Because the word of God in the Bible, when we come across that phrase, it is actually describing a dynamic, creative, and transformative experience that happened to people. Uh, you know, look, there are some real problems with locating the word of God in the Bible. 
to say that inside a leather bound or, or you know, whatever, they have, they have like, you know, affinity Bibles now. So you can get basically a Bible that looks like anything you want. One of the problems with locating the Word of God in the Bible is that it becomes static. It becomes frozen. If we can confine God's Word to a text that was written some other time, we can freeze it in time, then we can control it. We can dissect it. We can use it to formulate doctrines and dogmas that we hold people, um, essentially hold people up to and ask, if you, do you believe this? If not, you're out, right? Uh, we can craft systems and structures that benefit insiders and marginalize and shame and subjugate outsiders, people who we choose to exclude. The Bible contains many beautiful witnesses to the word of God, though. The call to love themselves and the neighbor. The call to pursue justice and equity and equality. In the Bible, at times we find that God is located with the oppressed, that God is on the side of the poor. When in the ancient world, it was believed that God, the gods were the people who were the beings who put the people in power in power. And so that if you have a problem with the king, you ultimately have a problem with God. But what we find in the scriptures is that God actually is with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. God is with those not who have power, but God is with those who are being abused by power. The Bible contains a dream of a world free of violence where swords are beaten into plowshares and, and AR-15s are melted down into pruning hooks. A world marked by compassion. And actually in the Bible, we even find perhaps the earliest, if not one of the earliest, egalitarian statements in human history from Galatians 3, which I referenced last week, that in Christ there is no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. But... The Bible has all of that. All those beautiful witnesses to the word of God are in the Bible. But the Bible also contains a lot of ugliness as well. There is genocide, violence, exclusion, and it's all sanctioned, say some of the texts, by God. There are texts that support the silencing of women, the institution of slavery, and the dehumanization of those who aren't part of the us. When we locate the word of God completely in an ancient text, we end up being beholden to that text and to ancient ideas about cosmology, about science, about medicine. I mean, if you think about it, that, that this sort of freezing of the word of God into a particular set of texts is why that in Kentucky you have people who have built a massive boat intended to prove that at some point there were six days of literal creation where Adam and Eve were riding dinosaurs. I don't know what, you know, I haven't been, but I, you know, I know the general idea, right? It's, it's, you, you begin when you are beholden to the Bible in this way and you take it so literally, you, you're starting to argue when people are producing fossils and they're saying the world is 14 billion plus years old. You're like, no, but it's actually only about six, 7,000. Like it, it puts us in a category of being sort of beholden to ancient ideas. But, if we can see the Bible as being a record of our spiritual ancestors' journeys, and they didn't know they were writing scripture. It wasn't like somebody woke up and went, all right, let's, I'm going to write a gospel today. Right? Like, that's not how it happened. But if we see it as sort of a record of their journey, of the questions they asked, of their failures, of their successes, of their experiences of God, which they were still processing and trying to understand, it can actually, the Bible can actually become a springboard for our own experiences. It doesn't limit them. We come to the Bible to see our ancestors' experience, 
so that hopefully we can be inspired and invited to have our experiences, to go and make new discoveries, discoveries that not only does the Bible not contain, but the, the writers of Scripture, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, could not have fathomed. And that, that to me, that's that's exciting. The Bible can actually be something that pushes us forward when we understand it not as this full and final word of God, but as something that's pointing us to the word of God, which is a dynamic creative experience. Put it this way, we want to learn from and honor our ancestors' experiences. We do not want to hang on always to their explanations. Their experiences were sacred. And even in the ugly moments, these were human beings trying to sort out who God is and how how their experience of God and what their understanding of God was like in comparison to other people's understandings. Like it's this beautiful experience and sometimes, yes, it's it's ugly. And so we want to honor their experiences. We've benefited from them. Like we've benefited from people who've decided, you know what, we should not sacrifice human beings anymore. And we've even benefited from a tradition that has said, you know what, we really don't even need to sacrifice animals anymore. The gods aren't angry. God's not after us. God's not against us. Right? We've benefited from that. But sometimes their explanations no longer work for us. Oh, let's say the Bible is beautiful and it's problematic. It's challenging. And it's frustrating. and It's hopeful and it's meaningful. But when we use the phrase, the, the word of God, Uh, when we read that phrase in the pages of the Bible, it isn't talking about itself. I mean, think of this. You read the phrase, word of God, in the Bible. The Bible didn't come out as a full and final produced Hebrew Bible, Christian New Testament, put them together, and it's ready. It emerged over time. Actually, even the Hebrew Bible, the writings section, which include the Psalms, the Proverbs, and some of those, the writing section wasn't even fully formed and codified until around the year 100 CE. Our our side of the you know the B uh, the BCE CE line. So when Jesus lived, died, all the first Christians lived and died. They still did not have a full and final Hebrew Bible. The Christian New Testament wasn't formed until the 300s. So that you had hundreds of years of Christians who never actually had a a Bible in the way we would talk about it. So when we read those word, word of God, God's word in the Bible, it can't be talking about itself. The phrase word of God, sometimes it's the word of the Lord. It pops up all over the Bible, but most often and most powerfully in my mind, in my opinion, it shows up in the prophetic tradition. So the Hebrew prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, even when you come to the New Testament era, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, the Hebrew prophets do talk about the word of God, and all of the prophets have a a kind of call story. They have this moment where they are invited to step into their role. And a prophet is not somebody who predicts the future. A prophet is somebody who, in in, in the scriptural sense, is somebody who speaks for God. They speak on God's behalf, and they have this message they've received, and they feel impelled, compelled, drawn, overflowing with it, so they have to share it with the world. God has spoken to them deep within them and they have to share it. And and it's often a word for a specific moment in time. So here are a couple examples. Here's from the book of Jeremiah. The Lord's word came to me, Jeremiah. Before I created you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I made you a prophet to the nations. This moment of Jeremiah where essentially the voice of God says, From the moment you've existed, you have been meant for this moment. 
and now I'm going to, you're going to be my mouthpiece to the world. I, I love the call story in Ezekiel, and it happens right at the beginning in Ezekiel chapter 1. And if you've never read Ezekiel chapter 1, if you want to go and find some great sort of sci-fi, there's like this chair, this throne with all these, just go check out Ezekiel 1. Uh, but here's how it begins. It happened on the fifth day of the month. Uh, it, isn't that sort of dramatic? It happened on the fifth day of the month. In the fifth year after King Jehoiakim's deportation. So this happens after essentially Judah and Israel have been defeated. Um, they're in a period of exile. The Lord's word burst in on pre the priest Ezekiel. I love that. The Lord's word burst. He wasn't out looking for it. It burst in on the prophet, uh, priest Ezekiel. Boozy, you know Boozy, Boozy son. In the land of Babylon, at the Kabar River, in the land of Babylon. This is not the promised land of Palestine, Ju Judah, Israel. This is the, a foreign land, a place where they don't know the language, a place where they don't know the gods, a place where they don't know the traditions. And the Lord's word burst in on the priest, the priest Ezekiel. There the Lord's power overcame him. I, I just love that image. He's just going about his business and the Lord's word burst in on him and the power of the Lord overcame him. Now, in these two texts, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and there's, I mean, you go to the prophets and most prophets have a call story of some sort. The point isn't that the prophets are getting an Amazon delivery that contained a Bible, <laughs> right? Like, like, like the Amazon drone flies up and it's like drops a package and they open it and it's a Bible, right? That's, that's not actually not what's happening, <laughs> The word of the Lord, the word of God to them was a message that had to be heard. They believed it was a message they'd been given, inspired by the divine, to share in their particular day, in their, for, the, for their community, for their world's particular need in that particular moment. It overtook them, it overcame them, it overwhelmed them. The prophets felt that God wanted to speak a word through them. And it was always a word that was calling those in power and those of wealth to be just, equitable, and fair. It was a word calling for the transformation of the world, including not just the religious transformation of the world. Sometimes it actually, they don't really, the only, sometimes the only way the prophets bring up religion is the sense that because you are oppressing the poor and because you are ignoring the needy, um, you're actually being unfaithful to God. All right, they, they don't come in arguing, well, you should just be a little more strict in your ritual. Actually, some of the prophets like Amos say, you know what? Stop your ritual. God cares more about justice than your worship gatherings. It was a word calling for the transformation of the world, including the societal systems of oppression and injustice in the world. And by the way, this word wasn't always appreciated by those in power and those who heard it. Often the prophets were met with not adulation. They were met with resistance. When the leadership leaders would hear that the prophet had spoken a word, they weren't like, wow, we've got to change everything. We've got to reform the system. We've got to bring justice where there's injustice. We've got to lift up the poor and make sure everybody has enough food to eat and make sure nobody's being oppressed in unjust ways, make sure nobody's sick and unable to get health care, right? Like, that, that, like that's, that's, that's a thing. That's what's going on. It's, but, so they weren't always like, wow, that's awesome. We should just do that because the word of the prophet the critique and the challenge of the prophet speaking for God was always a threat to the powerful. Because if things are going to change, it means their privilege is running out. 
It means that life as usual, business as usual, the way things have always been, can't be the way things always are going forward. If you're going to heed the word of God, if you're going to embrace the word that the prophet has spoken, it is requiring drastic and dramatic transformative change. And so sometimes the prophets were met with resistance. Often, almost every time, the prophets were met with resistance. Those in power couldn't embrace the message. It was actually Jeremiah, the prophet. He was, he's known by scholars as the weeping prophet. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 20. The Lord's word brought me nothing but insult and injury constantly. Think about these are the words of Jeremiah the prophet. He's just been going out and saying what the, the word of the Lord, what God has placed in him. He's gone out to say it. And he says, the Lord's word has brought me nothing but insult and injury constantly. I fought. I'll forget him. I'll no longer speak in her name. So Jeremiah's at the point where, you know what? All I've had is insult and injury because of God. I'm no longer going to speak in her name. I'm going to give it up. I'm going to hang it up. I'm going to go do something else. Notice what Jeremiah says next. But there's an intense fire in my heart, trapped in my bones. I'm drained trying to contain it. I'm unable to do it. Jeremiah says, I, I want to give up. I want to hang it up. I want to be done. I keep getting insulted. I keep getting injury from this. People are mistreating me. But I'm just showing up and saying what I feel like God has placed in me to say in the world. And all I'm getting is heartache. And I think about hanging it up. And when I do, there is this fire in my heart. It is trapped in my bones. And if I don't let it out, I don't know how I'll survive it. And so Jeremiah, in the face of all that, kept proclaiming God's word. And by the way, God's word, he's not talking about a canon of scripture. It didn't exist. It's still being written. He's talking about a message that is demanding to be proclaimed in that moment, a passion that had welled up in him for justice that he could not silence. Prophets just aren't embraced in their own time. Jesus is even known to say prophets aren't embraced in their hometowns. If you go back to the time when uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was active in the United States, and, and sometimes it's stunning to go back and look at sort of the, you know, now they do like the president and the Senate and the Congress and all these approval ratings. If you go back and look at MLK's approval ratings, um, he was seen by lots and lots of people in power as unfavorable. And yet now, every year, on you know, on in January on, on MLK Day and in April, April 4th, on the day that marks his assassination and murder, we see lots of, lots of memes and lots of quotes and lots of really, really wonderful things said about MLK. In his own day, he was not appreciated. Not in the way a person like MLK should have been appreciated. Because his call for justice, his call for equity, his call for fairness, ultimately led to his own death. Prophets are not often embraced in their own times. The message was resisted by those in power because it was a challenge to the status quo. And for them, the status quo worked really well. Like, I think maybe that's how you, know, you can begin to divine privilege. When, when, if privilege may be this. When the status quo is working really well for you and somebody says, we should change it. And you're like, why would we change it? It's working really, really well. They, they just need to do better. They just need to try harder. They just need to, that's privilege. And the prophets were a challenge 
It's a privilege. Now, when you, you come to the New Testament, the writer of John's gospel does something really, really brilliant. In the prologue, sort of the beginning of the gospel, before we start getting narrative, there's what is known in scholarship circles as a hymn to the word. L listen to how this begins. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the word, and without the word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish it. Now, of course, the writer's pointing back to Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, that's the first words of the Bible in the book of Genesis. God creates in that beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first thing that happens in creation is God speaks, let there be light. God speaks a creative word. And when God says, let there be light, there's light. The word of God in the beginning of the Bible isn't a text. It is a dynamic, creative force. When God speaks, let there be, there is. It's this dynamic, creating, and sustaining force. Then, after talking, when John comes along and talks about this creative word in the abstract, the writer moves to something more concrete. John 1.14, the word, this word, this word that creates, this word that sustains, this word that is dynamic and transformative, everything that it is came into being through this word. Then the word became flesh and made his home among us. The word, this dynamic creative force becomes flesh and blood in creation. I love the way Eugene Peterson translated this and or paraphrased this in the message. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The creative, dynamic, transformative, everything into being, bringing word becomes embodied in flesh and blood. Because the word of God isn't something we read. The word of God isn't something we read. It is something we embody. The point has never been to read a thing. The point has always been to embody a way. And when we come to see that that has always been the goal, the word becomes flesh, everything changes. It ceases to be sort of something stale that you can sit on the shelf, and it becomes a living and active word, and it also evolves and deepens as we do. The people who wrote their experiences and what came, became the Bible received the word in their day, in their context, and they learned and grew over time, and they changed. You cannot see the same view of God from the beginning of the Hebrew Bible to the end of it. You do not see the same understanding of God from the beginning of the Christian New Testament to the end of it. It changes over time. Within certain people like Paul, who wrote numerous letters, you can see his ideas evolving and changing over time. And the same thing is true of us. As we learn and grow, as we experience new things, as we come across things that we, weren't, we didn't know about, things that challenge us, and we open ourselves up to new perspectives, something powerful happens. An evolving faith, a faith that is changing and growing, isn't a sign of unfaithfulness. And I know that so many of us have been led to believe that that's the truth. I mean, how, how many of us, I, I cannot count on two hands probably the number of times somebody who's known me for a long period of time and that knew me when I was a, you know, a, a preacher boy back in the late 90s in the eastern part of Kentucky in West Virginia, if they were to talk to me now about what they would say, and people have said this, is you've changed so much. 
even in my, you know, my experience in, in Kentucky for, in Morgantown, there are people who were there at the beginning and, and people who I encountered along the way just said, you've changed. You're not the same person who came here. You don't have the same message. And every time I hear that, I'm like, thank God, because that means I'm still growing. An evolving faith isn't a sign of unfaithfulness. It's actually evidence that you're on the path of transformation. Maybe we should be more worried when our faith isn't evolving. Maybe we should be more concerned if, our, if we aren't growing, if our perspectives aren't being challenged and changed, if we aren't learning to see things differently. Maybe that's when we should worry. Because this idea, if you're not growing, you're dead. The opposite of growth is death. And a faith that isn't growing, a faith that isn't curious, a faith that isn't evolving is a dying one which means it's our transformation process is being shortchanged. And just to say this, an evolving faith is a deeply faithful one. An evolving faith is a deeply faithful one. A text can be rigid and inflexible. A text can be used to wound and alienate. Words on a page can be merciless, especially in the hands of someone with a grudge or a bias or a phobia. But word become flesh feels. Word become flesh can be moved in compassion. Word become flesh is how we're being invited to live in the world. Not just going around spouting scriptures, but embodying an ethic, embodying a way, embodying compassion, embodying a desire and the willingness to work for justice, embodying everything we find in the, in the Bible and the scripture is pointing to the word of God. The word of God is the dynamic, creative experience that we embody in the world, right? It's, it's not locked away in some text. It is living and active in us. <laughs> the word made flesh. It is what impels us to march. It's what we why we raise our voices in a call for justice. It is a fire in our bones and we just cannot hold it in. And I think this is the danger we face when our theology becomes all head and no heart, all concept and no incarnation. And I was there for a while where I just, I was in such a deconstruction of such an unraveling that all I wanted to do was, was to engage things that I could process intellectually and then I, I can know. And so I had, this is true, this is false, this is literal, this is non-literal, this is how I was taught, but this is how I see it now. And what I, was, what I think I missed during a period of time was I didn't have like heart. It was just about concepts. And when you get lost, in, and yes, it's important. That deconstruction process, that unraveling is important. I wouldn't be saying this now if I hadn't gone through that then. But what I'm finding is that we don't just need head. We desperately need heart because heart is where the word becomes flesh. I love this from theologian Karl Barth. The word became flesh and then through theologians, it became words again. Right? That's the danger is that we sit around and debate doctrines and dogmas, that we sit around and wonder who's right about this, who's wrong about that. And in the process, the word is just ready and it's trapped in the bones and it's a fire in the heart and it's ready to be unleashed in goodness, kindness, and compassion and justice in the world. I think this is why as a community, we have to regularly check in with ourselves to make sure we aren't just talking and theorizing, but ensuring that we are actually embodying 
the dynamic, creative, transformative word in our flesh as a community. Ink on a page cannot contain the word of God because the word has always been meant to be experienced, not just read. Dynamic, creative, flesh and blood, embodied transformation is what the word of God is about. And not just for individuals, but for the world. Are we going to seek to embody that? in the places we go, in the things that we do, in the way we engage, in the way we organize our lives, in the way we spend our money, in the way we divide up our time, in the way we engage with our enemies, are we going to embody that word? Because I think actually locating the word in the Bible is playing it safe. It takes all the responsibility off of us. But when the word came to Jeremiah, and the word came to Ezekiel, And the word came to John, and the word came to Jesus, and the word came to MLK. They chose to embody it in the world. And the world has been transformed because they did. Lives have been changed, and we've got a long, long way to go before we realize Jesus' dream, Martin's dream, or God's dream. But the way that dream becomes reality is when word becomes flesh. When this life has overwhelmed me And I feel like giving up I will cling to all you promise It will always be enough When the world around me crumbles And it's hard to understand I will run to you, my shelter I am safe within your hands Oh, you
for the weak, the strength that carries me when I am on my knees. The cross reminds my heart to trust your faithfulness and love will always be enough. Oh, you are a fortress for the weak, the strength that carries me when I am on my knees. The cross reminds my heart to trust your faithfulness and Grace Point, thank you so much for being with us again today. Before we leave today, I just wanted to take a minute and give you a couple things to think about as we leave this particular gathering and then go back out into whatever our week looks like. Uh, so here's a couple of questions. First, where or through whom have you experienced the Word of God in the way we've been talking about it today? Um, it's, it's interesting as I think back in my own life, the people who in critical moments, I, I think have spoken something so powerful to me that has been transformative and dynamic and creative in my life. So who are those people for you that you've heard something and it doesn't have to be a preacher. It doesn't have to be a prophet. It, doesn't be, it could be, it could be anyone, but they've spoken to you something that resonated deeply within you and that was transformative to you. So who are those people? Um, and then how practically might we find opportunities to be the flesh and blood word of God as we go throughout this week. Now, we're still in a, a place of, of social distancing, of physical distancing anyway. We're physically distancing. We're still washing our hands. Thankfully, now uh, in Nashville, we're wearing masks because it's been mandated. That's good news. 
Um, because sometimes if people won't love their neighbor, you've got, you've got to make them, I guess, a little bit. Um, but, but how might we find opportunities keeping, keeping aware of all the things that are going on right now and all the, the precautions we need to take? But I still think there are ways that we can be the embodied flesh and blood word of God right here in our own lives, whether that's through a online engagement or whether that's through a phone call or whether that's through an email or maybe a snail. It's like, you know, there's this thing called snail mail. You write a letter, you send it. Like, however, whatever that looks like, social distance gathering, whatever that looks like, how might we find an opportunity to actually embody the dynamic, creative, transformative, flesh and blood word of God in our own interactions in our own world this week? And I have no doubt, Grace Point, because I know you, that you will find some really beautiful ways to do that. So until we get back together next week, we hope you have a, a good, safe, healthy week. Reach out if you, have, uh, if you have any needs, if you have any questions or anything like that. You can reach me at josh at gracepoint.net. You can also find us online at gracepoint.net. And you can find all the links to all of our gatherings and all that there. Until we gather again, Grace Point, hope you have a good week. Mm-hmm.